You could have incredible food. You can have an incredible staff. You can do everything perfect, perfect, and still lose money. It's a very challenging business for a reason. This kind of stuff doesn't make, it might make it easier to start up, but it's also a lot easier to go out of business. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the restaurant industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and I've been looking forward to this interview for several weeks now because the subject matter that we're going to discuss today is on trend and important uh, in so many areas of the restaurant business today. So my guest today is Andrew Martino, who's the owner and founder of Ghost Truck Kitchen here in Jersey City, 356 Varick Street. And I've been looking forward to this for, like I said, a few weeks, Andrew. So thanks a lot for coming in, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to do it. So can we just get started, Andrew? Just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the restaurant business and and the whole background on that. Sure, sure. So I started, as a lot of people in restaurants do, I started at a bar. Believe it or not, I was a bouncer at age 18 while I was in college up at Syracuse University. Quickly grew fond of the industry, started managing the bar. By the time I had graduated school, I realized I really loved the business. I wanted to keep doing it. Uh, I was able to take an opportunity to um, run a restaurant nightclub down on Long Beach Island. Uh, I was there for several years before moving out to California, really hit my stride in Southern California, was managing a few different restaurants and bars, took over as a director of operations for a hospitality group, started my own hospitality consultant company. Ended up moving back east about four years ago, uh, continued consulting, and started getting this idea of what the food industry could look like a few years down the road and started tinkering with a concept that soon became Ghost Truck Kitchen as we know it today. That's cool. And I like the fact that your background is from an operational side because a lot of times I speak with people who start from the chef and the food prep side, but there's so many dimensions to this business. Now, Ghost Truck Kitchen, and everybody who's in Jersey City knows this, is a virtual kitchen that offers a variety of, of menus and a variety of different options for takeout and pickup only. What made you decide to open up this concept? What were the driving forces in your thinking as to why to open up this concept versus something else? Sure. So at the time when I was developing it, I was actually working for uh, two different private clients, one that wanted to invest in fast casual restaurants and another one that was dealing specifically in food tech. I started to see a convergence in those things as I was doing research at fast casual eateries, especially in New York, that there was just a lot of unused real estate. And there was tons of orders going out for delivery and pickup. And it seemed like a lot of chaos. No one really had a system in place, um, really understood what was going on. So I started to develop, I guess, a few different ideas of, of what the future of takeout could look like. What year is this? This is late 2016, early 2017. So it was just something I started toying with at night. Okay, well, what if we could do more than one type of food? What if we could do this thing or that thing? Um, So eventually I started building out these little virtual food trucks that could serve different things without confusing the guest and really tailor everything to to pick up 
and delivery, just seeing the way that people like to eat, my, myself included. I found myself going out to, to dine out less and wanting to be in the comfort of my home more and not really be able to get the quality of food delivered to my house that I could get if I had gone out. So that's kind of what we set out to do is just to make takeout better. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. It was visionary to do the takeout thing only because I, I grew up in New York City, so getting food delivered was a part of my life even as a kid. Of course, the, the process was, you know, picking up the telephone, you had limited options and, and all of that. But something I noticed a few years ago, and I wrote about it in, in a blog I did, which is that there were some restaurants that were very busy, brick and mortars, having tons of traffic. And so the delivery option being layered upon it was a great thing. But then there were other restaurants who were doing okay, and they layered the delivery option on top of it, and all it really did was create a multitude of problems, and it was sort of a, almost a lose-lose dynamic. Now, you were the first in Jersey City, I believe, to do a virtual kitchen? Yeah, I think maybe the first one in New Jersey, actually. Um, I don't, I'm sure there are others now, but at the time, the first one. And we still kind of employ a different model than most things that are popping up. We do a hybrid model which does have a brick and mortar element, but generally our brand lives online. The location of Jersey City is probably the perfect spot to be doing this because for people who are not familiar, if you're listening outside of this region, Jersey City has been undergoing a, a massive transformation over the last 10 years. I agree with you. I mean, I find that pretty much every meal that I eat for lunch, I'm getting a delivery on and I live out in the suburbs, so it's a little bit different there. Do you find that there's heavier volume during lunch or breakfast or dinner? Is there some segment that's... Uh, for us, and this is really, this is a little more specific to us, we're suited for dinner. Um, and that's just because the direction that I chose to take the brand was to be more of a premium quality type brand, which doesn't necessarily line up with what people want to pay for lunch. Um, so typically we do a lot of offsite catering, catering for offices for lunch, and it's dinner that that we really shine in. And that's once again, just a, a product of what we use quality wise and what we like to to present ourselves as a brand. Something that you've done, which is really cool that I've noticed when I was researching before this interview is you actually have several different full menus. So it's almost, you know, it's been relatively common for a number of different restaurants uh, that have a brick and mortar presence in New York, want to leverage their kitchen. They've realized that a lot of the offerings they have in the brick and mortar won't travel well. So they create a virtual menu for items that are geared towards it. You've got so many, like I'm, I'm pretty much plant-based when I eat. So I know you've got that phenomenal vegan menu. Was that something you launched right from the beginning, the multiple menus, or is, are those things you've layered on as, as time's gone by? The answer is yes to both. The original creation, I actually probably did double the amount of ghost trucks and concepts, whatever you want to call it, from the outset. Some worked, some didn't. Um, some things are now iterations of, okay, here's product we have in-house. Uh, it's being underutilized or there's waste. Let's create a menu around it. I'll give the example of our wings, which are one of our most popular items. Initially, they were a small part of a separate ghost truck that we call meat candy, they weren't selling very much and they're incredible. I decided to take them and make them an entirely separate menu that was just wings. And all of a sudden they started flying and now they're by far our number one seller. Um, and that's just kind of an example of 
you have to be really fluid in this business and adapt because something you might think is going to be the best seller in the world, you open, it doesn't sell for anything. So you have to be ready to kind of pivot fairly quickly on those things. That is such a, uh, such a crucial point, Andrew, because what we're talking about is the underlying offering was phenomenal. It was a change in marketing. And something that I think a lot of restaurants that want to maximize the opportunities presented through meal delivery, and if they're contemplating going all into a virtual kitchen, you have to be very sharp and attentive to your marketing because it's, it's a whole new way of doing it. It's, you're not getting people that are going to come in and say, although I will say this, you have a beautiful storefront. Your, your building is beautiful. Your pickup is beautiful. So you really have done something different because as I know, you know, you've got companies like Deliveroo and elsewhere that have industrial kitchens and remote part. No one's looking at them. In your space, I almost feel like you get the best of both worlds because the one thing, and I see you're shaking your head, I want to hear your thoughts. It's like the one thing that I think presents a challenge right now conceptually for people with virtual kitchens is, for lack of a better phrase, it, it might seem a little inhuman. Exactly. Um, the word I come back to is hospitality. I got in this business because I love food. I love the people around food. I like to see customers. I like to see their responses. Um, initially, when I was starting up this business, I looked into going completely to a dark kitchen, no customer interaction. And to me, that just felt cold and lifeless and not why I got into the business. So I wanted to be a part of a neighborhood and be a part of the community and get to learn my customers' names, have regulars, know their tendencies. And it's also important to be a new brand, right? We're not Chipotle that's opening up a dark kitchen. Like customers don't care where the Chipotle comes from. They know what to expect. If you're a new brand, I think it's very challenging to only be active digitally because who are you? You know, what do you stand for? You know, I think those are very big challenges that people are going to face that think that it's very easy to start a virtual brand and drive business. It's not, it's, it's a challenge. No question about it. And something else you've done, which gives you an enormous amount of leverage against these dark kitchens is because of your beautiful storefront and your store, your brand is very impactful. Those restaurants, and, and I want to know your thoughts on this, a lot of people, as you said, might be deluding themselves into thinking, well, I'll just start a virtual kitchen in the cheapest space and I'll just run it through Grubhub and Uber Eats. And I don't think people realize how incredibly vulnerable they are to those companies because it's already happening where Grubhub and Uber Eats are going to be building their own kitchens. You, with your established brand, your marketing, your beautiful storefront, you have an edge over them. And I, I would like to know your thoughts about that, because I do see a lot of these people who are chefs and they think this is the greatest thing. But the more reliant you are on these third-party delivery apps, the more vulnerable you are to them one day saying, thanks, we've got the customers, the data, we know what dishes are good. We'll just make it ourselves. You struck on what is my biggest fear in this business. It's what I call the Amazonification of the restaurant business, um, which if you remember five, seven years ago, you go on Amazon, they only sold third-party products. Then all of a sudden, Amazon Basics pops up. And Amazon's selling for everything from cable cords to anything else you can imagine. What is to stop a Grubhub or Amazon if they decide to get back in the game in the States? Having all that data, which you just mentioned, knowing what your customers' preferences are, and just cutting you out of the equation. Um, now, I think they have their own challenges, right? Because their idea is going to be to sell as much food as possible, as cheap as possible to grow their market share. Um, but that is a very, very scary proposition 
And a huge challenge is if these guys do that, furthermore, if you're a new chef and you think you're going to turn on this revenue engine, you need to know your margins. These companies are taking upwards of 30% of your sale, 30%. Those of you guys that are listening that know the restaurant margins, you can do the math and imagine there's not a lot of profit to be had if uh, you're giving away 30% of every single order. 100%. I mean, I, I think that those, I, I've even seen this at Wilco. We have our own phenomenal private label called Holland and York. And the theory there was to leverage our distribution channel, create our own tailored brand of products for our customers. And it's worked beautifully. But it's like you said, there has to be a differentiation point. So one of the points that you made is if Grubhub and Uber Eats, well, it's not an if, they're already doing it. Their objective is in all probability to enhance their margins by not just delivering it, by being the ones who prepare it. I think the way to counter that is exactly what you are doing and what others can do. If you live exclusively as a virtual brand, I, I'm not sure that's the best strategy to start from zero. You know, people like McDonald's and Chipotle that are now utilizing these third-party apps, they've got established brand value. Those that don't are... Exactly. And you're going to be entering what is soon going to be a very crowded marketplace, right? So not only are there new virtual restaurants that are going to be popping up all the time, but Grubhub and Uber Eats are actively, and I mean very actively, going to every single restaurant and saying, hey, why don't you open up a virtual concept with this? Why don't you open up a virtual concept with that? They don't care about diluting whatever else is out there. They just want as many entrants to their marketplace as they can possibly have. It's going to be a very crowded market and very challenging. And when you're talking about savings, all right, the big savings in a restaurant or the big costs in a restaurant are your food cost and your labor cost. Overhead <clears throat> typically isn't a monster expense. Now that could change in a market like New York City or things like that, but you might be saving 2000 a month on rent but you're missing out on 10,000 a month on sales of customers that will never know you exist. So there are definitely trade-offs. Uh, there are things that might work for some brands and don't work for another, but I think there's going to be a lot of learning for a lot of people entering this market. And it's definitely not as easy as it sounds right now. No question. And I think, you know, we did business. One of the early forerunners in this uh, concept was a company called Maple. Yeah, David I know Chang. well. You know yep. him well. So they were a customer of ours and one of the mistakes they made, which I identified early on, was they dramatically overbuilt capacity to serve what they anticipated demand would be. And what I said is I said, you know what, as great as these offerings are and as great as David Chang is, people want variety. If you're in New York City, they want variety. And they overbuilt capacity and, and it goes from there. I think with respect to meal delivery, the ones that are going to be the winners are ultimately the ones like yourself that have not only great food, but something that goes along with it. Because at the end of the day, let's put it like this, and maybe you disagree. I don't think brick and mortar restaurants are going to go extinct. I do think that, I don't think that human beings are going to relegate themselves to the harshest punishment known to man, which is solitary confinement and have Amazon <laughs> bring them everything from their products to their grocery, right? Right. You want to get out of your house. On the other hand, the meal delivery experience has to be a connection of the heart as anything else is. Food is not mechanized. And so the challenge is how to utilize the opportunity to prepare meals that are delivered 
and not be totally dependent upon the third-party distribution companies who, as you know, are having massive financial problems now. Jim Chano shorted uh, Grubhub. That market's having issues. And I wonder how sustainable that business is going to be for them, Andrew, if they don't get into something else right away. I, I completely agree with you. I think it's pretty clear that delivering food and last mile delivery has been a struggle for years. And the investor cash is eventually going to dry up as it seems to, and you're going to have to actually post profits. The way to fix that for these companies is what we talked about, you know, a little bit earlier, which is, you know, vertically integrating your entire stack, making your own food, delivering your food, so on and so forth. It's hard. I really believe in New York and I believe in Jersey City and I believe in other parts. I, I'm going to predict here, I think there will be pushback and resistance to Grubhub restaurants. I, I really do. I think that unless you can, you know, maybe if they sign endorsement deals, but then you get back to the capacity problem. What, what you have is you're located in a beautiful part. If, people, if you know Jersey City and you know where Ghost Truck Kitchen's located, it's a beautiful building in a perfect location. You've cultivated a dynamic within the neighborhood. People will come and pick up. A big problem that Maple had and other people are going to have if they're just virtual is how do you anticipate demand? Right? How, how do you anticipate demand? How do you know when your peaks are going to be? How much different food are you selling? And that's some of the problems I see with the very specific brand stuff of, let's say you want to be a fried chicken person, okay? And you're going to open up a fried chicken virtual restaurant, okay? Your food's amazing. It sounds great. How many fried chicken sandwiches are you really going to sell? How often is your customer going to come back for that fried chicken sandwich? Once a week, maybe. But we have customers that order from us three, four times a week because they can get such a variety of different foods. So that was one thing that we really wanted to do was to ensure that we were able to touch a lot of different desires as far as what people crave. I think some of the problem, problems are with these virtual brands, they're too specific. And once again, how do you figure out what your capacity needs are going to be? How do you figure out what customers are going to want? And what happens if uh, that changes next year? I think about poke all the time. Okay, that, All the time I think about poke as I was creating this. You don't want to be a poke place where there's winter because it's a super seasonal item. Same with acai bowls. They're popping up everywhere. I lived in San Diego for four years. Great product. Great product, acai bowls. It's a seasonal food. Trends are going to change. What we've created with Ghost Truck is a model that can be fluid with whatever's popular. We can create a new Ghost Truck if Ethiopian food or whatever the dish might be. We can roll with the tide opposed to some places where you're really stuck in a food that a year from now might be a blip. It could have been a fad. And not only that, you have a real brand. So people are loyal to the Ghost Truck brand. So if Ghost Truck comes out with Ethiopian, you don't have to reintroduce a whole new group of potential customers who don't know who the heck you are. Hey, there's this new Ethiopian place. It's Ghost Truck's Ethiopian. You're 100% right. I, I skipped over it, but I do would like to know, what are, you, what are your thoughts as to what the future of brick-and-mortar restaurants mm -hmm. look like? Um, sure. You know, just in general. Sure. So I believe it with brick and mortar, this isn't specific to New Jersey because the liquor license law, if you know the state, is a little bit different. But I believe if you're not serving alcohol, it's a challenge to have a full service place that, that doesn't have alcohol with it as far as profitability and margins. I don't think brick and mortar is going anywhere. I think experiential dining is always going to be there. I just believe you're going to lose that casual segment um, in dining out. So there'll still be fine dining, fun places that are lively, great places to go on a Friday or Saturday night. But 
those brick and mortar establishments need to be able to offer the guest something that they can't get at home, whether that's live music, whether that's really stepping up their service. I think something that's gotten lost here is service has gotten really, really bad over the past few years. And I think that people feel in that they have to tip their 15 to 20 percent. And maybe that's money they don't want to spend for a subpar experience, which Mm. leads them to dining at home again. So figuring out a way as a brick and mortar to really make the guests feel special and make the dining experience feel special is going to be really important for these guys to to not lose their business. 100%. A lot of our customers are in New York City, and I, I wrote a blog on this as well. New York City restaurateurs have been facing enormous headwinds over the last several years from the massive increase in minimum wage to... Uh, real estate costs. I remember in 08 and 09 when the market crashed, a lot of great restaurateurs used it as an opportunity to either extend leases, acquire new spaces, go into terrain that is now very hot but wasn't back then. I think we're inching closer to an event like that again. I'm not suggesting a 2008 collapse, but I think some of the headwinds that restaurants are facing have finally stopped, by which I mean, I don't think salaries are going to be jacked up again. I think rental costs can come in. But the challenge is exactly what you said, Andrew, and this is more for the New York market. What are you going to do with your space that's going to make it generate enough profit for you to be having that brick and mortar in the staff? I think alcohol is a big part of it. I think utilizing your kitchen as much as possible. So for example, I interviewed Veselka. If you have a catering option, if you serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if you can go 24 hours like Florent used to, if you can also offer delivery. You know, there are these restaurants, like the one I think of, Andrew, is uh, River Palm in Edgewater. Every time I go there with my family, it's packed. The only new addition is now I see a line of four, five, six guys looking to deliver. That wasn't there five years ago. So I think you're right about experiential service, alcohol. I'm also a big believer in being a part of the community when you're in an urban environment. What are your thoughts? I know that's I know that's a decision you've made. How important is that in terms of moving the needle for your brand and just just sales and, and engagement in general? I think it's huge. You know, they always every advertiser will tell you, oh, word of mouth is the most important. It's not lip service. It really is. You know, we could run Facebook ads and Instagram ads to death, but your buddy coming up to you and saying, oh, I just, I had the wings at Ghost Truck and they were incredible. You have to get them. You can't put a price tag on that. So being involved in the community, getting to know people, having people that support you and will talk you up to other people in a local market. Food is still local. Food is always going to be local. Restaurants are always going to be local, which is once again, why I think that Grubhub, if they try to do a restaurant is going to be a challenge, right? It's, it's important. Word of mouth still carries and plays more than really any other type of advertising. And you have to lean into it. If you're a restaurant, you know, engage with your community, try to sponsor events. If you can donate food whenever you can, you know, work with the underprivileged community. You know, we donate unused food. We donate food whenever we can to, to people in need. It, it goes a long way. No doubt about that. Food is about, you know, it's funny. The more people are utilizing tech, the more I think people are valuing human relationships. And it, it's become something that is more special and unique. Back to the 70s and the 80s when it was all person to person. You know, that's what life was. Now people, when you know, when my kids take a break from using TikTok or whatever and they engage with their friends, it's a whole rich new dynamic. And from the business standpoint... I think it's a it's a crucial thing that is maybe more important than ever. 
One of the things that I know you've been promoting, and I'm actually a big advocate and I want to get behind this as well, is how can we get people to start doing what we did back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? And I don't want to age myself that much. You're looking across me, Andy. I'm just thinking when I was a kid. You look great. I'm just thinking about when I was a kid and my mother and I would order up from the local place. How can we get people to start ordering directly from the restaurants they want to buy from and start cutting out these third-party delivery services? I hope you have an answer to that. That is the question that I have been asking myself for three years now. Um, it is the most important thing for me and my business is conversion. I spend an awful lot of time trying new ways to convert Grubhub or Uber Eats customers to our own. We have tried a lot. Some works, some does not. I've tried partnering with other restaurants to explain, to help them explain that customer awareness of you know, hey, do you know that these guys take, we put a flyer in every bag. Did you know that your third-party delivery service takes between 20 and 30% of every order? You know, order direct, save money. So we try to incentivize it as much as we can. We offer lower delivery prices, no delivery minimum. We offer unique items through our own uh, website that we don't offer on third-party websites. I can't tell you that there's a there's a correct answer, but it is the right question to be asking. So let me ask you, let's say that you were successful in converting 90% of the <laughs> customers back to you. You would have to add additional staff to accommodate that, no? I wouldn't have to add additional staff because to deliver? No. It's, it's still the same amount of orders coming in. So for us, now this is unique to us, we utilize a third-party delivery service. We don't utilize Grubhub's delivery service. Got it. We utilize a third-party delivery service that fulfills all of our in-house orders as well as any Grubhub or Seamless orders. The only orders being brought by an outside group other than ours is Uber, which obviously works directly with the customers. So when you use this third-party delivery company, it's obviously a substantial savings over the 30% cut that Grubhub takes? Yes. So I, I've done the math quite a few times. Yeah. Um, we'd have to reach a, a very high number of sales for it to be worth it to switch the other way around. Once again, this is some of the fun operator stuff. Just insurance cost alone, if we, bring our, if we have our own delivery drivers, our insurance bill goes up almost $7,500 a year right. just to employ our own drivers. So there are definite benefits to using a third-party system, a third-party delivery person, if we have slow nights, I'm not paying someone to stand around. If we have busy nights, there's always extra drivers to help with that added capacity. So it takes a whole, you know, scheduling, demand, delivery situation out of our hands, which is nice. We lose a little bit, of course, with that too, because we don't have full control over the situation. They're not my drivers. I'm not training them how to interact with the guests. So it is a, it is a give and a take. But I think even the most famous brand uh, that did this was Panera, who famously said, oh, we're not going to use third-party drivers. We're doing everything in-house. It lasted about, I think, eight or nine months. And then they started using uh, third-party carriers also. That is the challenge. I mean, it used to be, you know, it would be the same delivery guy from the local pizza place or the Chinese restaurant. I don't know how they did that. Uh, I think it, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging to find drivers right now. It's not only restaurants, but it's it's Postmates that delivers whatever you want. It's Amazon. You know, it's a it's regular Uber drivers and Lyft drivers. There's a competition for drivers. It's hard to keep these guys. Some of them work multiple jobs. We have we have delivery riders that come in with from Uber Eats. They have five different phones on them. You know, so they're doing multiple orders and for multiple well, this companies. Is the, you know, this is the challenge. That I mean, listen. 
Uber has been in business for nine years and the investors have been subsidizing the user experience for nine years. They, they, they don't make money and they haven't made money for nine years and the investors are happy to pay for it so that I can take an Uber and it's, it's cheap. On the other hand, with respect to the restaurant delivery aspect, the drivers are both their most needed asset and their biggest expense. So there's, there's a, un, almost an unsustainable tension there where they need these drivers, but they're looking to pay them as little as possible, which, means, which engenders tremendous resentment against these companies. I don't know how long it can last. I, I don't think we're as close to completely autonomous driving as they would like us to believe. Of, cor- of course There's not. tremendous forces against that. Of course, of course there are. And I mean, there'll be political forces against that as well as, you know, challenges technologically. If anybody's listening that wants to start a wonderful company, I think cutting out the middlemen, which is the grub hubs of the world, <laughs> the valuable assets are the drivers and the restaurants. If they were able to directly connect with one another, to come to an agreement on, okay, this is uh, the amount we can afford to pay you. The drivers would make more. The restaurants would give up less. They would be happy. But unfortunately, there are these massive companies that are in between those things happening. You know, but I think in a densely populated urban setting like Jersey City and much more so New York, it wouldn't be, the, the, the question would be, how would you build the tech, the platform to allow, to enable the customer to utilize it. Because you're right, you you could probably, if you were to get a conglomerate of every restaurant in Jersey City, put together something. But then how would the, you know, what would the customers do? Would they just go directly to the website of you or Hamilton Inn or one of those guys? I think that's, once again, becomes, are you a delivery company? Are you a marketplace? And I think Grubhub never knew the answer to that. I asked them that question directly. I said, what do you guys, you could say you're a marketing company, but now you're also a fulfillment brand. So it's 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 a challenging question. I don't I don't know if there's a right answer. It's hard. And I don't think there's an easy solution because someone would have figured it out. The best thing that I can say is if if I had, you know, my ideal scenario, our brand would be able to stand on its own that people would come to us directly. I think it takes a while to get that sort of brand recognition and then we would have our own team of drivers that could handle everything in house. Um I think Food being local is just like delivery being local. Problem is, all these local delivery services were purchased by the bigger delivery services. I think about Waiter in Minneapolis and and all these companies that are now really struggling now that they're part of this big ecosystem when they were actually doing very well when they were just in one city. No doubt. I think a lot of people need to really think. And and what I want to just remind the audience before we continue is, the food from Ghost Truck Kitchen is phenomenal. I get the vegan options and I am i can tell you from firsthand experience. And yet if you listen to Andrew and my conversation, we're talking about everything other than food. So when you own a restaurant and you want to keep that restaurant growing and profitable, doesn't matter how phenomenal your cuisine is. If you're not focused on the business side of things or you make missteps or you ignore it, it's lights out. This is a real business. Now, back to what we were were talking about before, Andrew, with these deliveries. I think probably at this juncture, the best thing that restaurants should do is essentially what you've done, which is if you can build a brand, a real brand that exists outside of just the third-party delivery platforms, you now have something where people know who you are. You're not reliant on Grubhub and Eater because I hate to tell people that are just contingent on these ghost kitchens. They can, they can switch it off whenever they want, once they feel that they've built something in that area. I happen to believe that they will be, 
as I said before, I, I don't think it's going to be so easy for them. I mean, how many people would want to buy food from a Grubhub kitchen? I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't either. But now let's say that I offer a buffalo chicken sandwich for $13. And now Grubhub is offering the same sandwich for $8. It maybe makes sense for some people. And I think that is the way that they would approach it would to try to undercut pricing because for them, it's all about volume, not necessarily the margins. All of this stuff is going to be very hard for people. And I, I want to stress that it's hard enough to, to open a restaurant. I think that third-party delivery is great for some restaurants. I think the restaurants it's great for are places that have additional capacity in their kitchen. They don't really, they just want extra sales. They're not really concerned uh, about the actual margins because they have a dining room or a bar service, right. whatever it is. Um, or you, you're back on technology, right? There are some companies that don't even have a website you can't order online. Great. Grubhub is a great place to go for those people that haven't been able to build out their own infrastructure. But if you're a new and you're setting up a beautiful website and, and making ordering easy and you're planning on just being on those third parties, you need to either have be able to get a, have a friend like you to get really um, cheap food in to, mm -hmm. to make some money or have a really, really strong game plan because there's not a lot of meat on the bone um, in this business to be giving away that much of your revenue. No doubt. That was what I argued as well. If you have a very successful brick and mortar restaurant and you're layering this on top of it and you're essentially not adding any additional resources and you've done the math. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, one of the things that I always focus on as a broadline distributor is whenever I'm going to a restaurant and we're competitive priced anyway, but I will always be even that much more competitive to add line items because so many fixed costs are already embedded in it. The trucks go in there, the electricity is being paid for, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing with a brick and mortar restaurant. If you are successful, if you're making tons of money and this is just an extra add-on and you've done the math, it's a great solution. But if you're depending on it or you're not executing on it properly, because I know a lot of restaurants, Andrew, that have magnificent cuisine and when it's delivered, it doesn't travel well. The customer is not blaming the delivery guy who didn't handle it properly, or maybe it doesn't handle it, and you've burned your brand. Of course. Now you lose the revenue coming in. And, and not only have you burned your brand, you've actually possibly cannibalized yourself. So this is something I was dealing with as a consultant a few years ago. Uh, I won't name the client, but in New York City, a very prominent place with a few locations. When we went back and crunched the numbers, they were actually losing a significant amount of money by being on third parties and offering delivery. They had cannibalized their in-house sales. So now instead of getting 100% of the revenue from a sale for a customer going in, they were getting 70% delivering to that same customer's home. And when those numbers came to the forefront, they were just an absolute shock how, much, how many thousands of dollars they were losing by offering a delivery service. Not all food is meant for delivery. We specifically focused that, that it was our number one goal. It takes time to to learn how to prepare the items so that they travel well. It takes time to learn how to package the items so that it matters what packaging you use. It matters how you bag your items. It matters how long they sit. All this stuff matters, the build of the item. Okay, how is this sauce gonna get absorbed into the bun? At what point do we have to refire it because the delivery driver is taking too long and we know the quality is not gonna be there. We don't own a deep fryer because as of this point, fried foods typically do not stay crispy. They get soggy. I would not want to give someone, people ask us, why don't you guys have fries? Because fries delivered suck. They just do. No doubt. So we focus on the things that we could make taste good 
when they're delivered to you and can can reheat well and maybe they taste still great when they're lukewarm and not piping hot you know those are all things that are important to a delivery brand which you would never think about in a traditional brick and mortar ever your concern is oh it's it's under the heat lamp for 10 seconds we better get it out to the table you know it's a whole different ball game when it's well, 30 minutes that's why a restaurant like yours has absolute competitive edge over any restaurant that is brick and mortar wants to do delivery, but isn't thinking about it with the layer of intensity you are. Another thing you did, which is really smart, which I advise people to do is if you are a brick and mortar restaurant and you're utilizing these third party delivery apps and it's working, I always say, have a few items on your menu that are only available in-house, have a few items on your menu that are only available for delivery. You can always accommodate the guest who comes in and says, you know, I really like the, th- what are you going to say? No, of course not. You can always accommodate them. You need to do that to preserve what you have that is special about the restaurant. And also to be honest about it, the last episode I did actually was talking all about the packaging, compostable stuff. I know you're very involved with the communities you talked about and you're a very responsible business person as am I. What impact do you think is going to be had in the industry as takeout becomes more and more in terms of the type of packaging that's used? Because obviously that has or can have an impact on the environment. Of course, definitely a a huge goal for us was to be environmentally friendly with our packaging. I'm sure as all of us have gotten takeout and delivery over the years have no doubt gotten that uh, delivery order where it's eight pieces of styrofoam, three pieces of hard plastic. To me, that's unacceptable this day and age. So you know, we've taken it a step further to, you know, we don't even do bottled water. We use boxed water. You know, all our stuff is paper goods or biodegradable plastics. I think that's something that all consumers are going to be concerned with if they're not already. I hope that it catches on and more restaurants feel the need to do this. And now I also would like the customers to understand this packaging is typically more expensive. So when people, and we, we get it, I know we're, we're priced high for for some items people need to take into account is the fact that we use these things in packaging and it's not cheap. It's not cheap to use uh, sugar cane and bamboo silverware. It's not cheap to, to use compostable souffle cups that cost eight times the amount that a normal regular plastic souffle cup costs. So as long as customers are willing to see that increase, maybe it's 25 cents or 50 cents on an item. I think there's there's not going to be an issue. I think that that's worth it for most customers in their mind. It's definitely worth it for us as far as being a, you know, we're a certified green business. It's really important to us and we hope people follow suit, you know, with that. I think that from the perspective of I remember there was a great health food restaurant in New York City called Cafe uh, Angelica. It was in the Lower East Side and they had the pickup window adjacent to the restaurant and that was something. Do you find you get a lot of traffic from pickup? Because I also think the pickup experience is a a sort of underappreciated aspect of the restaurant business. You have the dine-in, you have the delivery, but I think pickup in and of itself can be its own excellent experience if done properly. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that in general and, and how big a part it plays in Ghost Truck. Sure. I think you're absolutely correct. The pickup window that we use, we utilize a separate window for our customers and a separate window for our delivery drivers to eliminate confusion for the drivers and also make the customers feel comfortable when they walk in that they know exactly where to go. We strive very, very hard to ensure that the customer's food is ready at the exact time that they're told to pick up their food. Uh, We deliver customers a text notification upon fulfillment of their food, basically trying to avoid that awkward 
eight minute, 10 minute waiting time. When you walk in, your food's not ready. And what do you do? You're standing around. I think the pickup experience at some restaurants, full service restaurants is very poor because there is no waiting area. I think the same thing for delivery drivers. There's no place for them to go. So we created and designed a store with that in mind that we wanted both the delivery drivers and the customers to have a good pickup experience. Uh, We also give our pickup customers a free treat when they pick up their food, just a little extra incentive to pick it up. Sometimes it's a new dish we're working on. Sometimes it's a, a piece of dessert or a sample. Customers are always very appreciative. I think they like that. They get the text, they walk in, their bag's there, they grab it, they're out the door. It takes 15 seconds. No question. And I think you're absolutely right. The pickup experience at most restaurants is horrible. And what you've done by not only making it a great experience, it gives you an opportunity every single time to reinforce your brand and reinforce what Ghost Truck Kitchen means. And this goes back to my own thinking of people not wanting to be in solitary confinement. You know, I can envision a scenario where I'm at home and the kids are going wild and my wife's having a a bad day and we're going to get dinner and I'll be like, you know what, honey, I'll go pick it up. And it does. So what it does, you get the best of both worlds. You get to go out of the house. Same reason people like to go shopping. Again, you get to go out of the house. You get to interact with a business that you have a good vibe for, walk down the street, whatever it is, get your food. And if you turn that experience as you've done into something that's pleasant and efficient and special, tremendous value-added benefit. A hundred percent. And got to keep in mind that pickup orders are a hundred percent you know, that's 100% of that revenue is going to us. We're not utilizing a third-party delivery. It's not going through Uber Eats. The people are coming through us directly. And we really appreciate that, that they've taken, whether it's the extra step to sign up to order on our website, to call us, whatever the case may be. And we want them to, to feel good and enjoy that experience because if they enjoy it, they'll do it again. If they come in and it's a really bad experience and they're feel uncomfortable because they're the only person standing up in a dining room and everybody, they feel like everybody's looking at them. Everyone's kind of had that feeling. You're like, "Uh, I'm not going to do that again. No, it's true. One of the things that is, I think, unique about Jersey City, we'll focus on that, although you could say New York City, is because you're in this, this metropolitan area, there's a lot of people that are densely populated. Obviously, you can get to it. In the suburbs and in more rural areas, I'm not so sure that these ghost kitchens are going to work because you just cannot traverse that level. I mean, I, what, what are your thoughts, Andrew? I, I, I just think I, you've been right a lot. I got to tell you, you've been, you've, well, you've I, I did a lot of research yeah. coming into this interview because I, I've watched what you've done. I've been very impressed with it. Thank you. I've been reading about these virtual kitchens a lot. So I wanted to get your expert opinion, but sure. Sure. I think at least for us, we have a plan to, to enter the suburbs, but it's a completely different model from what our plan would be in a densely packed metropolitan area. Cause I believe like you that in the suburbs, people get delivery far less. They're in their cars far more. And it's a whole different vibe. You, you might want a place to actually sit down and eat more often than not in the suburbs, or at least have a parking lot or someplace or a pickup window, a drive-through window. You know, I think it's a whole different game and it's volume-based. You're not going to get the same volume, obviously, in the suburbs that you are in, uh, in an urban area. So if you're talking about less volume, giving away 20 to 30% of your sales, that is not a winning formula. So I, I do believe that the spread of ghost kitchens, is, at least for the time being, is going to be in very heavily populated areas. Now, that being said, as you mentioned earlier that you you know grew up in New York or you know were there for for quite a while. New York's essentially had 
ghost kitchens and virtual this, restaurants this for, is for not 40 new years. Technology. This is what I say to people all the time. Right. This is not earth shattering. I mean, I know with my mom, she and I would get delivery at least twice a week, maybe more. The main innovation is the multitude of restaurants. Correct. You know, back then we were limited to probably 15 to 20 neighborhood restaurants and you'd call them. They'd come in the same amount of time they come now. You'd use a telephone instead of a, a mobile app on a phone. You'd pay cash. Although at the end you could pay on credit card by the phone. So you're right. This is not some earth shattering thing. Agreed. You know, my son, it's funny. My son just called me because he used DoorDash to get IHOP delivered to the house. <laughs> it's a school day. That's earth shattering to him because right. we never had that. Right. In the suburbs, but you make you know it, this is what it is. Of course, and that, and that for for us was a huge reason why we not only did not enter the New York City market, but have no plans to do so at any time. Real estate's expensive; they're everywhere. Even if you find a quote unquote underutilized or a cheaper space, it's not that much cheaper. There are a billion options that people can get and have been getting for years. You're just another entrant in a very crowded marketplace who's still got a lot of overhead. So you know. I, if you look at, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Green Summit Group at all, but they were a um, essentially a virtual restaurant group. They came up with about, I think they had at one point eight different brands. They were selling out of commissary kitchens for delivery. They are now defunct and out of business after initially growing and spreading that investor money around. I think they realized a lot of the same problems is it's hard to have these massive kitchens, not know your delivery not, you know, you're, you're not special in, in New York. You're no, just you're not. not. I mean, Maple built out as if every uh, fourth meal in New York was going to be something they offered. And that's just not how things go. No, I mean, like I said, the, the best laid plans and, and back to what we talked about, about food, not being the most important, right? You could have incredible food, right? You can have an incredible staff. You can do everything perfect, perfect and still lose money. You know, it's, it's a very challenging business for a reason this kind of stuff doesn't make, it might make it easier to start up, but it's also a lot easier to go out of business. No, and there's no question about it. And th this is why this has been a masterclass for people. If you, if you own a restaurant or you want to open a restaurant, and if you're doing anything with takeout, this is an interview to listen to again and take notes on because what Andrew has created is really something special and incredibly difficult on every level. For me, one, you need to have a brand. Two, there needs to be massive community engagement. Three, there needs to be a utilization of every resource to dissuade people from using the third-party apps because they're not your friends. There's no way around it. So many of these people that are coming out of culinary schools, and maybe they are phenomenal chefs, and they think, well, this is easy. I'll open up a ghost kitchen, and I'll get to try recipes. Well, unless you have unlimited money like Uber does, it's not going to be very long before you realize this is, this is just a massive bleed-out, you know? Brand, community engagement, value-added benefit from ordering directly without the app. And I really think the pickup component is going to be huge, continuing to be huge. I completely agree with that last statement, right? I think everyone you talk to in every business, right, people that want to add delivery is because you want to add a revenue stream, right? Well, when you do a completely ghost kitchen, right, or a dark kitchen, you're now taking away a revenue stream. So I don't know why you'd ever want to put yourself in a position to take away not only our revenue stream, but a revenue stream in which the margins would be the biggest. That just seems like a, like a faulty logic to me. So when I was doing all my business modeling, I didn't understand how that was going to work for someone to, to be profitable. So we don't do a ton of pickup business, but it's 10, 15%. And that 10, 15% of 
our highest margins really makes up and, you know, for a lot of the lag of the Uber Eats orders and things like that. And I can even envision a scenario where during warmer weather and based upon some experiential add-ons that you could do, whether it's something to for kids or something related to the community, you can even drive that higher. I mean, when we were in Manhattan in the meatpacking district, we did a tremendous amount of pickup business. Now that was at a time before you had Restaurant Depot and Jetro. We were a huge part of the community. People used us when they would run out of one or two things, they could do it. Now you have Restaurant Depot and Jetro, but we've been able to sort of differentiate the pickup experience in a number of ways. One, we have the product ready when you want it. You don't have to go around with that shopping cart and break your back. And two, by being part of the community, people know you're there. They almost view it as their own warehouse in the backyard. And it's a, it's a simple thing. I really like the pickup thing. It's important. If you can, if you can do it right, it's, it's really, really important, um, both from a customer experience-wise to, to help your brand but, and, and profitability, right? I mean, that's, that's what matters is being able to keep your doors open and losing out on those pickup sales. I'll tell you, we wouldn't be surviving if it wasn't for that, you know, those, that pickup, that takeout business, because it's, it's, it's really important, the margins. There's a reason why people invest so much money, even extremely established brands like Nike, Rolex, you pick it. There's a reason why these companies invest hundreds of millions of dollars, billions collectively to create an emotional connection with consumers. And if people think the, the cuisine or, or the dining experience of the future is going to be industrial kitchens in remote areas with just blacked out windows and no human connection, I think that that concept, they'll try it. It's massively vulnerable to a ghost truck kitchen, massively. So I, I want to end with this, well, with two questions to look into the future. One, where do you see ghost truck kitchen evolving over the next five years and if you were to give the, well, I was going to say the best tip for someone, but you've gone through so much, that would be a waste of time. So where do you see Ghost Truck Kitchen evolving over the next five years, let's say? Sure. You know, for us, it's about regionally taking over to be known as the best place for takeout food. We specifically like to brand ourselves as takeout food and not delivery, just to get that into people's minds that we do that. Ideally, somewhere between, you know, four and 40 locations, depending on our growth and really focusing on markets like Jersey City that are really just outside huge metropolitan areas where, you know, it's still dense. There's not nearly as much competition and maybe people aren't really doing what you're doing and filling in cuisine gaps, I think will be really important for us in the future. Meaning, you know, we don't currently do Indian food because we're in Jersey City. There's incredible Indian food all around us. That's for sure. Now we might move to a market where there is no Indian food or there's no Thai or there's no sushi. And we would love to do those things to fill in cuisine gaps for people. So, you know, I think being flexible, obviously, is, is paramount for us. Um, continuing to grow in similar markets to a Jersey City in this area is, is our goal and just be known as the place that you go for takeout food. Andrew, this has been a, a real pleasure for me because I enjoyed the research looking up to it. I have an enormous amount of respect for what you've done. Um, I know what it takes to be a successful operator in this industry. And what you're doing with Ghost Truck Kitchen is truly innovative. And this interview, I think, will be looked at years from now. And they're going to say this was the guy that unlocked the key because, again, all the things we talked about, brand, community engagement, pickup, user experience. And I think there's a decent probability between now and the next few years where there's going to be a massive hiccup in these third-party deliveries. 
And something that we can't envision right now is going to come that's going to be very beneficial for the owner operators because it's just not going to continue like this. It's not sustainable. Those guys are facing regulatory pressures. They're facing financial pressures. Eventually, the stock market will go down. And once their share price isn't used as currency, they're going to have a problem. But Andrew, this was a, a really great interview. And I know that our audience is going to absolutely love it. And I advise people to listen to it again. Take notes if you want to do anything in the restaurant business or really any business in general. It's Ghost Truck Kitchen, 356 Varick Street in Jersey City. Absolutely beautiful building. If you want to go to the website, it's hellogtk.com. On Instagram, it's at hellogtk.com. If you're in Jersey City and you haven't tried it yet, it's unbelievable. Andrew, thanks again, man. This was awesome. Pleasure. Glad to do it. Had a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that interview with Andrew. I like to see people that are really sharp and innovative and on top of things. And something I just thought of when this interview concluded, we had a phenomenal conversation and we spent almost no time talking about the food. And I think that serves as sort of a helpful metaphor about what this podcast is about. It's about running the business successfully, profitably, scaling it, identifying future opportunities, future threats, uh, cuisine, food, huge part of it, would never minimize that. But it is just a part of it. And I hope everyone that was listening thinks about that, particularly if you're someone who's contemplating opening a virtual kitchen and think it's a snap and it's an easy solution. In reality, it brings with it a, a number of challenges which can all be overcome, but they require thought and dedication. And I uh, really appreciate Andrew for giving us the details and the insights into that. This week, I want to talk about a book that somebody recommended to me that is a work of fiction, and I had never read it. I was a literature major in college, but it was such a magnificent book, and I enjoyed it so much that I want to share it. And the book is Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. The translation was by Michael R. Katz. Read a lot of fiction when I was in college, then got into uh, nonfiction when I graduated law school, but had never read this work of Dostoevsky's. And it was absolutely magnificent. One of the greatest things that I've ever read. So I want to thank Anne for sending me that email and recommending it. Doesn't have anything to do with business, but then again, business is just a part of life, right? And the experience of reading Crime and Punishment certainly was a, uh, a powerful one and, and one that I'm glad I experienced. And I want to thank Anne for recommending that to me. So anyway, thank you all for listening. This was a really enjoyable podcast. If you have any questions or you want to DM me on anything at all, you can DM me at Wilco Foods on Instagram. Our handle there is at Wilco Foods. Or you can go to our website, www.wilcofoods.net, and you can click on the Profitable Table podcast page there, or you can just shoot me an email. Would love to know what you thought of this interview love to know what you think about the future of virtual kitchens and uh, really would look forward to some more book recommendations. I love it when they're coming in and uh, I do review them and just have a great, great week, everybody. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>